I'm so thankful Jeff stayed up here and led us in that. I, and the ladies were playing. I was, was, was listening and reflecting on it and was thinking, we need to sing this. And I was trying to figure out if I had the courage to come up and sing. And so I, <laughs> I looked up and Jeff was walking across and I just said, thank you, Lord. So, um, man. You know, our lives are, are greatly shaped by how we follow the examples of people who go before us or how we don't follow them. And so I know in my life, there, I think of two, two instances or two maybe, maybe relationships more than instances I think of that really shaped my life. Uh, one was maybe not in a so positive light, and I don't want to go into it too much to give our young people too many ideas, but um, you know, growing up, you have, I had two older siblings, and, and I got to watch the, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of their actions and their decisions and whatnot, and so um, I learned. I was smart enough to learn from uh, the things they did well and the things they did bad. The only problem was I didn't learn not to do it. I just learned how to do it and get away with it, and um, so through various circumstances, one of my sisters had to move home for a little while, and, and uh, she, I remember one night she was at home, and, and um, I came in when I wasn't supposed to come in, and and she was sitting there, and she was just angry, looking at me. And, and she said, you never get caught doing anything. Mom and Dad just don't do anything to you. And I said, well, it's because I'm smart enough not to get caught. I learned from you. And uh, so I, I look back, and we still kind of joke about that. And, and so um, I, you know, that's one of those maybe not so good examples. The other one is when I was in high school, I worked construction. And those of you in here that work construction know that that can bring about a a rough crowd at times and it definitely did in, in my life and I was in a, a spot where when I started doing the work there um, with the construction company I was working with I was not um, living in a way that honored the Lord I was rebelling it was actually in the same period I was just talking about uh, with learning some some bad moves um, but I got put on a crew with a man named Houston um, and this guy was kind of the man's man he was a bodybuilder and was huge and was just kind of a, a guy you everybody shaped up around him when Houston was on on the site well the thing about Houston was Houston loved the Lord and Houston wasn't afraid to tell you and um, so I listened to Houston I, I remember one day we were we were working on something and he was holding something his finger was all gnarled up and and um, I, I said Houston man what happened to your what happened to your hand there and he said well uh, before I was living with the Lord, I, that was somebody's face did that to my finger. And I, I said, oh, and he goes, you should see that other guy, though. <laughs> and, uh, and he stopped. He, he kind of chuckled. He was just kind of one of those, you know, jovial guys and big guy, you know. And, and he kind of chuckled, and he looked up, and he said, don't do it. He said, it's not worth it. He said, you live your life for the Lord. And, and I'll never forget this big bear of a guy telling me that. And I, I remember days on the work site with with him and you know lifting a beam me and my buddy are straining about to break our necks trying to lift and he walks over and just lifts it up and puts it where it needs to go and we sit and eat lunch and and him looking and telling us about things the Lord did in his life and coming to tears I never forget those moments and and God gave me the wisdom to follow his example as well and, and it, it really influenced my life in, in, a, in a very positive way in the in the way that I made some some good decisions because he put Houston in my life to, to show me an example of, of what it looked like to follow the Lord. And so, this morning we're going to turn to a narrative of Scripture. 
And I, I appreciate the narratives in Scripture because I, I, it's kind of like getting a glimpse of a Houston or getting a glimpse of, of someone else in our lives. That my, and my sister gave me a lot of great positive examples, too. I, I certainly didn't just learn negatives from my sisters. They gave me many positives as well. But the Scripture, the narratives in Scripture give us examples of people who do well for the Lord and, and people who make a lot of great mistakes for the Lord. And so I think, I think we would have a lot of wisdom in, in looking and, and looking at these examples and, and seeing what do, they, what do they teach us about God. You know, that's the, that's the thing about Scripture is it's not just a, a list of philosophical sayings or proverbial wisdom. It has that in it. But it's not just a, a random list of commands that do this and don't do that and, 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 and here's some, some good ideas and here's some wisdom. It's not just all that thrown out there and void of any context. The narratives of Scripture frame what God does and why He does it. As, as a matter of fact, Scripture as a whole is a narrative. If you think about the story from Genesis to Revelation, it's a narrative of what God has done among His creation to redeem His people. And so as we look through those things, we, we can learn from the example of God's people. And we can look to them to see how do we more faithfully follow God. We can look to the examples of narratives and see what does this teach us about God. That should always be our first question. We open up a passage of Scripture, we look and say, what does this teach us about God? I think the easy thing is to open up to, to say, Ephesians or, or, or a New Testament book that says, you know, it's very clear, do this, don't do that. And, and it's a letter where, where they're given some kind of admonition to follow the Lord, and we can see clearly, oh, okay, yeah, okay, God is, is sovereign, and He called us to faith, and okay, good, we see that clearly. Sometimes we can read narratives and go, hmm, and zoom right through them and never step back and go, what does this teach us about God? That's why I like narratives, because we, we can look and go, okay, what does this teach us about God? How was the situation that, that this man or woman was in, how, does it, how, how is it similar to situations that I find myself in? How, how, did, how did this individual exhibit faith? How did, how did they act in sin? What can I learn from that? Where, when might I be in that similar situation where, where I really just have a choice to make? Am I going to follow the Lord? Am I going to respond in a way that honors God or... Am I going to follow a, a way that is not God-honoring? Am I going to make a simple decision? We, we look and go, what, what did God do in this situation? How, how did he honor his, his, his promises? How did he show himself to be faithful? How did he show himself to be mighty in these situations? So, so we ask all of these questions of the narratives of Scripture to understand the context of what God is doing among his people, who God is, and how he calls us to live for his glory. So this morning, we're going to look in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to look at the, the life, an instance in the life of King Jehoshaphat. Now, I, I heard that Bill prepared some of you for the sermon this morning and gave you a nice little lyric to have in the back of your head, and, and I see you shaking your head and smiling. Um, so it, it's just a funny name, right? So let's all, we can all say Jehoshaphat together and laugh, and then we'll move on in the sermon, right? So Bill said there was a childhood song that he used to sing, Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat, right? And uh, I don't know, I'm glad we don't do that in children's choirs anymore, Scott. Um, but there we can, we can laugh about it. Last night I told my kids what we were preaching and looking at this morning, and I said, we're going to look at King Jehoshaphat, and they went, <laughs> and just started laughing. So there, we've got that out of our system. All right. So King Jehoshaphat, who was he? First, let's look at Second Chronicles 17. This will give you a good idea of who King Jehoshaphat is. He, he was the fourth king of Judah. He reigned after his father Asa. He reigned 25 years. If you look at 2 Chronicles 17, these first six verses give you kind of a good summary, a good idea of Jehoshaphat and his reign. 
Starting in verse 1, it says, Jehoshaphat, his son, talking about Asa, then became king in his place and made his position over Israel firm. He placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had captured. So he was a pretty smart guy. He knew what he was doing. He was acting on behalf of the country and setting up garrisons and, and protecting the country. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Why? Because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the balls, but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So he didn't let the people determine how he acted, right? He set, the, he set the tone. He set the example of following the Lord and being faithful in the way he lived his life in relationship to the Lord. Verse 5, so the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord, and again, removed the high places and the ashram from Judah. So Jehoshaphat was, was a, a good king. We, we have a lot of good examples of, of someone following the Lord in the life of King Jehoshaphat. So what he does eventually in his life is he, he comes into an alliance with Ahab, the king of Israel. And in that alliance, one of the things that they do is they attack Moab. And as they go and attack Moab, they defeat Moab. And like happens so often, when Moab gets defeated, they kind of go back and they get their friends and say, Hey, listen, um, uh, Israel and Judah beat us. They whipped us like yard dogs. Uh, we want you, you, and you. They get the big, bad, gnarly guys and say, Hey, all right, let's go get them now. And so they bring them back, and they're going to get Israel and Judah. All right, so that's the situation that we find ourselves in in Second Chronicles chapter 20. So let's read there, starting in verse 1. Scripture says this, says, Now it came about after this, talking about the reforms in chapter 19, Jehoshaphat brought about more reforms to the nation of Judah. It says, After this, that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram. And behold, they are in Hezazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. So what, what we're presented with right away is this crisis of belief in Jehoshaphat's life. A crisis of belief is, is simply a moment in our lives when when what we say we believe is kind of squeezed. It's like the juicer, right? Where life just kind of squeezes everything we hold dear. And we find out who we are. It's in that moment we have a choice to make, right? And so, so uh, Jehoshaphat and the nation of, of Judah, they find themselves in, in a crisis of belief where, where there's something coming upon them that everything that they have in them is, is, is kind of in turmoil. And they're going, okay, do we really believe what we say we believe? Now, we experience this today, don't we? We all have crises of belief, and, and honestly, they, they look different in each of our lives, and they even can look different in our lives as we progress in sanctification, as we grow in Christ, that different things can bring a crisis of belief into our lives. There's things that early on in my walk with the Lord that, that really was a crisis of belief. Something happened, it was kind of one of those moments where I was like, wow, am I, 
am I really going to believe this? I remember the first time that, that I heard evolution taught in, in a very um, compelling way in my geology class as a, as a sophomore in college. And it was the first time that I heard a really, really sound, not sound, I'm not going to say a sound argument, a, a compelling, a, a somewhat convincing argument about it. And it, for me, it was a crisis of belief where I was going, wow, do I really believe everything that Scripture tells me that God is a creating God? Right? Well, that, that's not a crisis of belief for me anymore. I, I hear about evolution and all this crazy stuff that they're teaching. It's like, that's, no, that's, that's, that's not true. <laughs> you know? And I, I'm not tempted to believe it. Right? Because God has grown me in my walk with Him. So we have different moments in life that present different challenges to our faith and different challenges to how we cling to the Lord and serving. What is Jehoshaphat's response? How does he respond initially? What does it say? Huh? He was afraid. He was afraid. He said Jehoshaphat was afraid. This is a common response, isn't it? I think, I think we would probably do ourselves a disservice and others around us if we say, hey, there's never a time I'm afraid. Oh, come on. Yeah, there is. There's times where something comes upon you and, and you're fearful, you're afraid, right? And Jehoshaphat responded that way. He, he, he's thinking, wow, uh, it's not just the Moabites now. They, they've got all their, their big brothers in here and they're coming, they're all coming upon us and there's a multitude coming. And he's fearful. He's afraid. It's a, it's a pretty common response. The question is, what do we do in that, in that moment of fear? So when life throws us a curveball, and we're not expecting it, what do we do? We're, we step back and we're afraid, but how do we respond to that fear? That's the question. Jehoshaphat had two ways that he responded, right? So the first way is that it says he turned his attention to God. Your, your, your Bible may have a, a little number there. It says literally set his face. If you have the ESV, it says set his face. That Jehoshaphat turned his attention to seek the Lord, or he set his face upon the Lord. Now, what this means is simply that, that Jehoshaphat pa postured his body and his life towards God. He didn't turn and run in fear. He turned to the Lord, right? He set his face to the Lord, his attention. When we set our face towards something, what are we doing? We're giving it our attention. We're focusing on, on that, right? So we're looking. This, this mic is getting me this morning. We're looking to the Lord. And that's what Jehoshaphat does. When, when he is fearful, he looks to the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't turn away from him. He doesn't turn and go, wow, they're coming. Um, let me count how many we have in the military, which he could have done that. If you, if you flip over to um, Second Chronicle, Chronicles 17, and just we won't read it, but if you look through or write down sometime 10 through 18, it lists his military. And it lists all that he had gathered, the supplies that he gathered, and all the commanders and the people. That at one point, he had 200,000 valiant warriors, it says. I mean, Jehoshaphat had a military at his disposal. It wasn't like he was sitting there with a bunch of innocent little people going, oh, wringing their hands. I mean, they had a military, right? They, they had full rights for Jehoshaphat to go, well, I'm afraid, and he's going to call and send the dogs out, right? He could have done that, but he doesn't. He, he's fearful, and he turns and he seeks the Lord because he trusted the Lord more than he did his own military power. He understood where true power was. It was in Christ. It was in the Lord, right? The second way he responds is that he, it says he proclaimed a fast. 
He proclaimed a fast. So he not only responded and set his face upon the Lord, but what does he do? He proclaims a fast among who? His family? No. Among the entire nation. Right? He leads his people. He brings them together, and he leads them to all set their face upon the Lord. He's the only king in Chronicles that did this. He's the only one that called a nationwide fast. He brings them all together, and he says, let's fast. We need to direct our attention to the Lord. We need to seek the Lord. Listen, do you, do you see, I hope you see the parallels and, and that you start seeing that as a pastoral staff, we don't just sit around and go, hey, what's something new and different we could do? Oh, I know. Let's get in homes and pray during July. No. We sit and we step back and we think and we go, what's going on in our culture? What's going on in our lives as a church? What's going on in our community? And how do we respond? And, and we feel convicted. It's like, man, we have got to direct our attention to the Lord. We've got to set our face upon Him. And so we say, listen, in July, we're going to purposefully commit Sunday nights, and we're going to set our face upon the Lord. We're going to direct our attention to Him. There's a lot going on right now that we're weary of. There's a lot going on that's troubling, that, that we don't know how it's going to turn out. And as we see those things, we want us as a body to set our face upon the Lord. We want to see what He's going to do. And we don't, want to, we don't want to look and see the headlines and get worried and despair and look to this for the answer or this for the answer or look to our own means. We want to direct our attention to Christ. You see, every crisis of belief presents us with a choice to make. Are we going to look to our own resources or are we going to look to the Lord? Every crisis of belief presents us with that. So some of you sitting in here tonight, or this morning, you're sitting in here with a crisis of belief in your personal life. Something's going on in your life that is more than you feel like you can handle. You haven't encountered it before, and you just don't know what you're going to do. You have a choice to make. Are you going to set your face upon the Lord, or are you going to despair and be fearful? Many of us gathered here this morning, we read the headlines. We see what's going on. We hear the news of, of across the sea of ISIS and, and the despair and the destruction. We see all those things. And we're concerned about that. We're concerned about our nation. We're concerned about some of the freedoms that we hold most dear. See, the question is, when we look and we read those headlines and we're struck with a bit of fear, how do we respond? Do we set our face on the Lord or do we start wringing our hands do, do we get nervous are we filled with despair or do we stand up as the town crier and just shout about how bad our culture is it's bad 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 terrible terrible awful and do nothing about it we run that risk as well see God has called us to set our face on him to look to Him. That's the calling we have, is to direct our attention to Him. Let's read on in verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O oh our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? 
They've lived in it. They've built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance? Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. So Jehoshaphat comes and he prays. He comes before the Lord. Look what he does. He starts out in verses, um, verse 6. And he declares who God is. He says that he's the God of our fathers. Man, there's heritage. Jehoshaphat brings them back and, and refers and says, listen, he is the God of our fathers. There, there's great heritage. This, this God whom they serve now, he's reminding them, saying, listen, this is the God that our fathers served. This is the God that Abraham served and, and Moses and Jacob and Isaac. They all served this God. It's the same God. He's not changed. The, the God that we stand in and the God that, that we bow before today in worship is the same God. We have inherited a great heritage, a great lineage of faith from those who came before us. It's the same God that, that all the saints of Scripture worship. The same God that, that Martin Luther stood firmly for the gospel for. It's the same God that we gather here this morning to worship. He says, you're the God of our fathers. Are you not God in the heavens? You are God. You're the ruler over all. He says, you're sovereign. You are the Lord of all creation. He's reminding the people, and he's praising God for who he is, that God is a great and a mighty and awesome God. He says that power and might are in your hands, so no one can stand against you. This is who you are. We praise you for that. In light of everything going on around us, God, this is who you are. This is who you are. We know that. And then Jehoshaphat comes and says, look, this is what you did. Did, did you not drive out all the inhabitants from the land? I mean, all the people that, that lived in the land, you sent them out. You, you did miraculous and amazing things to give us this land, the land that we're in right now. God, you did a wonder to bring us here. This is what you've done. And then he makes this declaration of trust in verse 8 and 9. He says, he says listen, they, they've lived in it. The, the people that, that, that you ran out, now your people are in it, and we've lived in it. We've built you a sanctuary for your name, and, and we've made this statement that, God, no matter what comes upon us, we are going to direct our attention to you. We're going to cry out to you in this place because this is your place. We're doing that. Now he presents God with a situation. He looks at him and says, in, in, in prayer, and, and he says, Behold, here's the situation. The, the Ammonites and the Moabites are, are coming with all their big, bad, gruesome friends. And they're coming to invade us and to kill us. And God, do you remember why they're here? Because you told us not to run them out. You, you, you told us back, back in Numbers 20 not to do that. Remember, God? <laughs> so now we're in trouble because we did what you said at that time. So what's going on? What, what are we going to do? This is the situation. They're rewarding us. And now here's his appeal in verse 12. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless. 
Man, this, this great leader with all this military says, we're powerless for what's coming. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. What a statement of faith. What a statement of faith that, that Jehoshaphat would look and he would go, we don't know what to do. Now he, mind you, he's praying this before all the people. This is the leader saying, I don't know what to do. I'm at a loss. But, what does he say? But our eyes are on you. <laughs> our eyes are on you. Listen, I don't know what to do about some of the things that's going on in our culture. I have no clue. I really don't. I, I don't know what to do and exactly how to respond in light of what the decision that's anticipated at the end of the month from the Supreme Court. I, I don't know. I don't know what kind of doors that's going to open, where it's going to lead. But I do know that we would be wise to do what Jehoshaphat did and direct our attention and our eyes to the Lord. That's what we're called to do. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly. But what I do know is that we still serve the same God, and He still reigns supreme, and He's still sovereign, and He's still in control. He's still faithful, and He still calls us to live the same life we were called to live 20, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 years ago. Nothing's changed on that front. So we are called to set our eyes on Him. Set our eyes on Him. Now as a side note, look at verse 13. It wasn't just the men. Who did He call? Who was standing before the Lord? All the infants, their wives, and their children. We need to let our children see us, direct our eyes to the Lord. They need to see that. They need to see us bowing. They need to see us praying. Right? We prayed last night as a family. It wasn't all pretty and easy and quiet. It rarely is in my house. Right? But I want, I want my children seeing us bowing and trusting the Lord. That's what I want to see my kids. Or that's what I want my kids to see. They need to see us doing that. God responds in verse 14. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. All right, so this is, this is a big warning, a big flashy neon sign that says, Hey, listen up. Listen up, right? This, thus says the Lord. So here's what God says. Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. So Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites and the sons of the Kohathites and the sons of the Korahites 
stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. God, God looks to him and he says, what's the first thing he says? Do not fear, verse 15. Do not fear or be dismayed. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't fear. There, there's no reason to fear. Why? Because I am God and I'm still here. Nothing has changed. I'm still the sovereign Lord and ruler over all creation. And guess what? The battle's not yours, it's mine. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. The battle that God has called you to, it's His. You see, God is the same thing. God's called us to a battle, right? He has called us to engage in battle. Ricky read of that earlier in Ephesians 6, that we are called to battle. But guess what? It's God's battle, it's not ours. But He calls us to a role in it. He calls us to have a place in it, to participate in it, to engage in it. He doesn't call us just to sit in these chairs and wring our hands and go, man, I hope it turns out all right. No, he calls us to engage, but he does so in a way it calls us to his specific battle with his specific armament. The battle is not ours. It is the Lord's. And then he says what? He says, go, stand, and see. Go, stand, and see. He says, listen, you, in this instance, he says, you don't need to fight in this battle. You just go station yourselves. You go out and face them. Now, what do the people do? They hear this. What do they do? They worship. They worship, right? So Jehoshaphat's been standing, leading the people in prayer. All the people are standing, they're gathering around. And then the word of the Lord comes back to him. What does he do? He bows to the ground. The people who had been standing, presenting their petitions to the Lord, bowed to the ground. And saw his face and worship. Now, look at think about this in a timeline. What's interesting about when they worship? What has God done? What's God done? Are the Moabites dead? Where are the Moabites? They're sharpening their swords. <laughs> they're going, man. These guys are toast. Look at them. They're 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 in their temple. We're going to go wipe them out. The people of God worship. Why? They have a confident faith. They take God at his word. Isn't that amazing? God hasn't acted on their behalf yet. He just says, this is what I'm going to do. And so what do they do? All right, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to worship. We're going to praise your name because you're a great and a mighty God. We know you're faithful. We're going to trust you and we're going to seek you and we're going to serve you and we love you. They worship. They have a confident faith. Listen, I think this confident faith is what we need sometimes. When we consider going out and sharing the gospel this week in our community or in our workplaces, when we think about gathering for prayer, or we think about June, or August when we say, hey, listen, it's time for us to go out and we're going to have relationships and build relationships for the purpose of sharing the gospel, making disciples. Some people are wringing their hands going, ooh, listen, God has already said that he's got people from all tribes and nations that are his that are going to be worshiping around the throne. There's people that, that are waiting to hear the gospel. And we know that he is mighty to save, that he alone can rescue. He alone can save. We know all these things. Let's go out in confident faith. Let's go out and, and just share the gospel in confidence, knowing that God loves to answer the prayers of his people. In my devotional reading yesterday, I think it was, I was reading about how God says, listen, if you ask according to my will, I will answer it. Man, let's ask according to his will. Let's say, God, use us to, to take the gospel to Somerset. God, use us to, to make disciples. God, use us to bring people to salvation. Let's do it. 
Let's do it. Let's, let's see it at Hopeway. Let's see it at Colonial Village. Let's see it in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. Let's see it while we cycle down 914 or while we run a 5K. All those things. Let's have relationships and build relationships with people for the sake of the gospel, trusting that God is a God of his word. He's faithful. He's sovereign. He's mighty. He is mighty to save. He alone can rescue. Let's have confident faith. And let's worship now for what God's going to do. Let's worship for what God's going to do. And they trust him. And what do they do in verse 20? They obey. It says, they arose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, O Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. Why would he say that? Could be because of what he was about to do. No offense to our choir, but look what he does in verse 21. He says, when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Jehoshaphat gathers the choir, puts their choir robes on, and sends them out before the army. Yeah, I kind of chuckled too when I read that. I was like, seriously? I mean, I don't know. I love our choir, but I don't know that they're the ones I would send out on the front line of battle. Jehoshaphat does. It's not God's. God's ways are not our ways. God led Jehoshaphat to do that. And Jehoshaphat did what God led him to do. Sometimes it looks silly. Sometimes it looks funny. Evidently, the guys in the choir sang like me and Ricky and Scott. Verse 22, it says, When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. So they were routed. The sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found so much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves more than they could carry. They were there three days taking the spoil because there was so much. And they sang, and confusion came about, and they started killing each other. <laughs> this is King Jehoshaphat with this incredible army. And God says, you just go and stand and watch me save you. Go and stand and watch me. You go engage them. Be strong. Be courageous. Go. But man, I'm going to do the work. Scripture constantly minimizes man and maximizes God. Our problem is we tend to minimize self. I mean, maximize self and minimize God. That never turns out well. Four quick principles or implications as we close here's the first thing that we need to learn is that difficulty in our lives often come about or right after or even as a result of spiritual reformation in our lives Jehoshaphat had just brought about the spiritual reformation in chapter 19 and wow look what happens God does a great work in your life and right after it Man, life throws you a curveball. Don't let it destroy your faith. Turn your eyes to the Lord. Keep focused on Him. Second thing, 
we need to consciously posture ourselves to the Lord. When that crisis of belief came upon Jehoshaphat, when it comes upon us, we need to consciously make a decision to posture ourselves to the Lord and to seek his face, to set our eyes on him. Maybe that's a decision about college. Maybe that's something where college has gone totally wrong. Maybe that's something about in your marriage. Maybe it's something in your family. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's something with your health. We have to consciously make a decision that when the pressures of life come, we are going to seek the Lord. Maybe it's our culture. And as a church, we consciously make a decision and say we are going to seek the Lord on Sunday nights in July. We're going to gather in homes, eight to ten homes around Somerset. And we're going to gather and we're going to pray together and we're going to seek the Lord. We need to posture ourselves to the Lord. You're worried about what's going on in our culture? Okay, then let's seek the Lord together. Starting in July, you're going to get more word about that. As you get word about where you can go, then let's do it. Let's gather and let's confidently pray and seek our, our God. Third, the battle is not ours but God's. God's ways are not all, always our ways. We face a different foe than a lot of people might think. Our foe is not the latest celebrity that expresses transgender. Our foe is not the Supreme Court. Our foe is not the boss that's oppressive. Our foe is not the kid on the team that makes fun of us. Our foe is sin and Satan. And God alone can defeat him by the power of the cross. And so we trust him and we take the gospel. We don't go wielding a sword of metal to strike down those who don't believe. We go wielding the sword of the Lord, his word, the truth of the gospel that God might radically change hearts through us and Saul's would become Paul's that's our battle last thing is that God calls us to engage the world not withdraw from it this is no time for us to step back and wring our hands we live in uncertain days there's no doubt about it we've talked about it a lot in here the reason we talk about it is because we don't want you to sit in fear. And we don't want you to cower. We want you to go out and stand in the truth of the gospel. And watch how God moves. Watch how God moves. Go stand in the truth. Let's do that here. Let's do that here. I've said several times this morning, and a lot of you have been here on Sunday nights. That July and August in the evening is going to look a little different. Because we want to direct our faces to the Lord on Sunday nights in July. Maybe you don't normally come on Sunday nights. That's okay. Let's step out in faith and let's gather for prayer. And then in August, we're going to just say, hey, let's go. Let's go out. Let's be the church scattered. Let's go. And let's stand for the gospel, stand for the truth. We want you to join us in that. We want to go out and we want to stand in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in our backyards playgrounds racetracks fishing boats bowling alleys, golf courses you name it we want to stand for the gospel and we want to see our God move to save those that only he can save let's pray I thank you for your word, we thank you for the testimony and the narrative of Jehoshaphat we praise you for the work that you did in his life. We praise you for the faith that you granted him to, to look to you. 
when, when all else around him told him to be afraid. God, we pray as a church, as individuals, and as a community of believers that you would direct our hearts and our minds to you, that we would stand in faith, that we would not cower in fear, but we would set our eyes upon you. God, use us, send us out to bring you glory and to advance the gospel. It's in the name of Christ we pray. This morning, if...